Game Cool Books, episode 69, to talk about the world she knew. Our epigraph this time for The Whisperers, chapter 22, on again from John Milton's Paradise Lost. Thick as autumnal leaves that strow the brooks in Valambrosa, where the Etrurian shades high overarched embower. It refers in context to Satan's legions, his uh, rebel angels, as they lie stricken, entranced on the beach of the inflamed sea. Of course, for Pullman, it refers to the ghosts that we're going to meet here in the world of the dead. And the first thing that he draws our attention to is the very uh, bright and living blood uh, on Lyra's wound. Will offers blood moss to help with it and uh, tends to her as she tended him when they first left the Tower of the Angels and he lost his fingers. The blood moss, of course, coming from his father um, at the end of the subtle knife. Makes me wonder, I don't know why I never thought of this, what Will's going to do about playing the piano when he goes back to his world. One of the first things we learn about him is that he has a piano teacher. He uh, describes, that is, Pullman describes Lyra as uh, ash pale, which makes her look a little bit like a ghost herself. But it's that very passion and emotion that she shows, like the very wound that proves she is still alive. She has a wild despair as she realizes that she can't tell lies anymore. And Will insists it's not all she can do. She can read the alethiometer. So they're talking past one another in a way. Uh, the alethiometer precisely doesn't tell lies, but tells the truth. And her exclamation about telling lies uh, is going to be a kind of misunderstanding of the power of storytelling that she still very much possesses. And that's what Pullman will be concerned with in these couple of chapters. As they calm down, they look around at this land where the ghosts were, as he describes it. It has a dull self-luminescence, which is a kind of inverse of the light that shines on the angels. There's no true shadows or light here. So in place of the hell or heaven that we might expect in a Christian afterlife, there is simply nothing. There are so many dead, though. Many are lying listless, like those rebel angels. No one is playing. And they look at them, the newcomers, with a kind of fearful curiosity. So we have this mutual wondering on the part of the living and the dead here. Only the living can cling close together. In Lyra's mind, it's because she doesn't have Pan right now. And the narrator just as quickly switches over to Will's point of view. He's glad that she did hold on tight to him. They uh, especially wonder at the bright forms of the Gal of Espians. And 
the question we'll ask is if they can speak their language or speak at all. Words and speech have, as Pullman tells us, authority. And their living words have more authority than all the mass of the dead. This again is a common epic uh, trope, that of the gibbering shades. They do speak, but with very quiet voices. And um, we can only whisper. So the narrator suggests that there has been no harrowing of hell here. There's been no visits from epic heroes and poets um, because this is the first clear voice in all the memory of the dead. As they crowd forward, it's the children especially who seem to long for life and particularly uh, for the demon that they take the Galavespians' dragonflies to be. This is the first thing Lyra really says to them, that if her demon was here, she would let them all stroke him. She holds out her hands to the children. They throng forward and warm themselves at the lifeblood of our living characters. They are um, little by little feeling themselves become like the dead. And this is a kind of vampirism. So not quite like the specters, but in a way, the dead take something warm and living from Will and Lyra. She says they don't have an infinite warmth or life to give, which is uh, part of the, the difference, I suppose, between a uh, Christian outlook on uh, on love and a sense of um, the golden mean or a moderation from a more cl uh, classical and Aristotelian ethical system. Uh, is there such thing as too much love? Uh, finally, she pleads for them to hold back and tells them that they're looking for someone. She is as bright as a holly berry, that blood on her head that draws them to her. Now the ghost girl who speaks up has harpies. They can hear them in the distance. Um, there is something worse than tearing at the physical body that these bird creatures can do. The voice is like dry leaves falling. So again, that autumn leaf image. Um, and only the children seem to uh, be interested at all. At this point, the adults are sunk in lethargy. Um, they are looking for Roger, of course, and he's only been here a few weeks. So uh, that might narrow it down a bit, but they realize that there's so many, again, this overwhelming overwhelming quantity of the dead um, that they might never see uh, even the tiniest fraction of them. This is what causes a despair compared to the harpy herself heavy on Lyra's shoulders. Um, but that universality of death is going to be inverted here in a moment, just as that weight of the harpy is going to actually lift Lyra up. <laughs> 
when they are on the next stage of their journey. Um, Will also wants to find his father, John Perry. So the ghosts spread out or spread the word asking for these recent uh, newcomers. And then they flee like dry leaves, scattered as the harpies and their shrieks. Contrasting, of course, with the whispers of the ghost, the harpies come in deriding. Um, there is a kind of filthiness about their speech, too. We don't hear exactly what they say about Will's mother, but it's awful. Yet he can keep part of his mind separate. He notices that none want to come near the knife, and that when he raises it, the harpy, perhaps no name herself, has to dodge clumsily out of the way. He tells the others that they can only scream, that it was a mistake when they hit Lyra, he thinks. Um, the possibility that it's specifically the subtle knife that they fear is not really raised here. So, Galavespians hold back. Uh, the ghosts, seeing Will unafraid, drift back towards them. There's again that lure of the blood, the heart beating. Will um, is uh, struck by the smile and the sound of Lyra's voice, uh, something he knew and liked more than anything, that she's thinking of something daring, but not ready to speak of it yet. So she really is back to her old self and his emotions uh, at recognizing that are are very much played on here. Her wound is still open, but she certainly brushes the blood aside. So they feel the ghost hands tugging at their ribs. And now, rather than the specters, it sounds more like they're the demons, that connection inside their, their chests. The harpies wheel and scream above, but as they walk along, they get to talk to the little ghosts who want to know about their demons. And Pan is her dear abandoned demon she's conscious of every moment, being left outside to collect later, Will has to say, because she can't speak. And they learn that the name of one of the little ghosts' demons was Sandling. She asks if he settled yet, and they have these kind of conversations that we remember from the Golden Compass. Um, another was named Mattapan. They used to play hide-and-seek. He would change into chameleon. Um, one time, when the child's eye was hurt, their demon guided them home. Uh, one demon never wanted to settle, and they would argue about it. Um, all these little touches of, of memory, of sensation, and of emotion as well start to come out. Um, they wonder where their demons might be now. Of course, they go out like a candle when you die, so they ain't at all. They don't exist. Uh, another argues, no, they aren't nowhere. They're somewhere. Um, and again, it's as if the ghosts are borrowing life from the children who have come. They've stirred up these stories and memories. Will wants to know if anyone's from his world, where they don't know about demons. And uh, they start to reflect on the many kinds of worlds Another child knew their own death and thought the demons must be something like that. Um, they wonder if anything will ever happen again here, but the proof seems to be that Will and Lyra have arrived. 
It's the first thing that ever happened. Lyra's question is what they would do if they could. Would they go up to the world even if it was only for one moment? Yes, they immediately reply. And then she changes the subject. She's burning with the new idea, but she needs to tell Will first. From above, the Galvespians can perceive a vast movement, an effect uh, like the migration of birds or reindeer. It's described in, again, this makes me think of Lyra's Oxford, the birds. Um, the uh, children who are not ghosts are not leading the movement. They're not following it, but somehow focus it into an intention. So the movement of the ghosts starts to look very much like the movement of dust itself, as we've seen it described and, and uh, theorized. The thoughts of the Galavispians move quicker than even their steeds, the dragonflies. Alighting on dry branch, they ask themselves if they had demons. They must have, because it feels as if their heart has been torn out. Um, they wonder if the uh, ability of people in Lyra's world to see and talk to their own demons is the reason why the leader of the rebellion is someone from that world. Now, again, the uh, nature of this rebellion and its continuity with the original rebellion is uh, a bit unclear. Uh, I think the implication is that Asriel is part of a much larger process that's been going on ever since dust has been in contact with human beings. Um, but uh, this discussion um, comes around to the limitations of communication. Once they're in the world of the dead, no messages can go in or out on the lodestone resonator. Um, apparently, we might uh, continue to reflect. Uh, dust can't uh, escape from here either. Uh, the ghosts are not able to uh, pass back out of the world of the dead once they're there. And uh, the rebel angels themselves seem to have been unable to infiltrate this place. But um, they wonder if the knife can find a way back. They can only imagine that Will must think so. They also wonder if this was the choice, the choice to leave her demon that was spoken of in the prophecy. If it wasn't, and if Lyra doesn't survive and make it back, then she won't be able to make the choice. Uh, she won't meet the tempter. And they think that this probably is still in the future. They must still bring her to that moment, um, the boy with her, because they are bound together now. Um, finally, uh, Lyra speaks in a whisper at Will's ear, a noisy rush of warmth, that she wants to take all the little ghost kids outside to set them free. And the adults can come too, I guess. He gives her a true smile, warm and happy, that makes her heart falter or beat in a new way. Uh, she has to tell herself to walk normally. Uh, this moment changes the nature of that title of the chapter, The Whisperers. Um, it suggests, again, a continuity between life and death, 
where there had been a sharp division before, uh, suggests the power of the dead to remember, somehow related to this power of Lyra's to have spontaneous new ideas and to uh, have a, a determination to, to act on them. The word among the ghosts is spreading too, um, like an electric message from one cell to another in the body. So again, that connection between spirit and body is very much insisted upon here. And the Galvespians notice a new movement, uh, something gripping and urging forwards down there among the ghosts, an unhappy, honest face, which must be Roger himself. So they speed back, watching the patterns of movement till they find Will and Lyra to tell them the good news that their friend is there, he's on his way. The wings, uh, we get a moment of description of them, are like enamel, that uh, hard, bright, workmanlike uh, material. Uh, decorative as well. And they're only about an hour's walk apart. So Will makes another effort and Lyra is charged and, uh, with questions. She uh, shortens the way, asking if the others are helping or just getting in the way. And uh, the Galvespians answer truthfully and patiently. So that movement, that bringing together uh, is under uh, under their uh, their control, their uh, their aid, but this, of course, is only foreshadowing the much more important bringing together that they've resolved upon for Will and Lyra. Now, the next chapter, chapter twenty-three, No Way Out, takes its epigraph from. John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Um, this is a really interesting use of the epigraph here. It juxtaposes um, the uh, salvation uh, promised in the Gospels with that rewriting of Genesis that's at the start, at the inspiration of Pullman's story, and uh, at the end of the first book, when Lyra meets her father, um, the sense in which Jesus is the truth, and that knowing him, holding his teaching, will make someone free, uh, is somewhat paradoxical, of course, and uh, that seems to be the point. Um, I was talking to a scholar, uh, Lauren Shohet, back uh, when I was reading the other books, um, and she made the argument that uh, the Son, Jesus, is more present in the series, and particularly in the third book, than most readers realize. Um, and I didn't follow up with her on that at the time. During our conversation, we were discussing some other things, but, but I'd really like to think more about that, actually, now that we are in third book and coming towards the end of it, um, in what sense it engages with the gospel stories as well as the fall story would be quite important to consider. So in the uh, 
opening of this chapter, the harpies, who we've sort of been ignoring, uh, again, are brought to our attention. Um, there's a kind of uh, clot of malice, we're told, that hangs over the scene. But it's the meeting of Lyra and Roger again. Uh, they suddenly see each other and rush together with delight, but he passes like cold smoke through her embrace. They can never truly touch. He can only whisper how he thought she'd be older when she came down and, and wouldn't want to speak to him. He feels bad for doing the wrong thing, he says, when their demon was uh, caught by Lord Asriel's demon and uh, was briefly freed. They should have run away. They shouldn't have tried to fight Stelmaria. But um, Lyra says it's not his fault. It was hers for bringing him there in the first place. He should have gone back with the other Egyptians. She should have let him go back. But he reflects, maybe he would have got dead some other way. There might be a sort of fate to this. Um, anyway, he doesn't blame her. So Will sits down apart, uh, nursing his hand again. Salmaki attends him. Um, Maharaja asks, how, how did they come here alive? And where's Pan? Uh, Lara is brought back again to reflect on this worst thing she ever did. Uh, worse even than her betrayal of Roger, it seems. He must know how it hurts. She feels like a murderer. That first thing that the lithiometer told her about Will. And here it's emerging that Roger really was pretending to talk to her during all those chapters in between chapters that we saw the italic uh, uh, speech uh, between her and Roger. That was uh, him wishing, wishing, wishing to get out because it's hopeless here. There's no change. The bird things, the harpies never really let you sleep, only doze while they whisper all the bad things, the worst things that they've uh, done in their lives. They shame you up, he says. Um, and then, again, a, um, a change to the whisper comes because Lyra is going to talk to him like when they were planning mischief at Jordan. She knows about the witch's prophecy, and no one knows that she does. <laughs> she overheard it in Trollicent about... Uh, her destiny to do something great in another world. It was during the cloud pine test. And she thinks that it must have either sunk out of her mind or there was too much going on. She forgot. She never even talked about it with Pan. Um, and this is a really bold uh, curve uh, for Pullman to throw into the story at this point. I, I can't tell whether he's intended it all along and only not revealed it, or he's realized that's important, that Lyra does, in some sense, know what she's up to. Um, anyhow, Lyra connects this with something Macosta told her, um, that uh, she has witch oil in her soul. Um, and they remember about stealing the boat from Macosta, nearly sailing it to Abingdon is the best thing they ever done. So 
contrasted there with the worst things that each of them have been thinking about, inspired by the harpy or by losing their demon. Now, uh, she has a lot more to tell him. She has so much to tell him. Um, but she thinks that finding Roger is a kind of proof that she's on the right track. So like the test with the cloud pine, finding the right sprig, um, she's found the right ghost in the world of the dead. And of course, her goal now is to help the ghosts get out, to rescue all of them. This is going to be her uh, fulfillment of what she did at Bullvanger. This, of course, is also an image of the harrowing of hell, which doesn't exactly come into the gospel story, but is part of the traditional story. Uh, she knows that her father said death is going to die. And uh, this is how she interprets that as relating to her destiny. But she doesn't want him to tell anyone else yet because they might not get out. Um, but Roger's so full of the joy. Uh, all he can say to himself is that he told the others that Lyra would come and rescue them, just like at Bullvanger. Um, he wished again, wished it, but he doesn't think they ever really believed him because every kid thinks that someone like their dad will come to save them, only they never do. And now they're sort of talking past each other again here because Lyra's trying to explain that she couldn't have done this without Will and the others, Tealis and Salmachia. But Roger can't quite follow. All he notices is that as Lyra talks about Will, she is unaware of how her voice changed, how she even looked different as she told her story. And Roger noticed it with the voiceless envy of the dead. So yet another way to think about that whisper, um, that thing that prevents speech, <laughs> uh, prevents growth, death, and envy, these kinds of things, and whatever it is the harpies might represent. Now, on Will's side, he's talking to the Galavespians. He tells them too, now that Lyra has let the cat out of the bag, he can tell them that their plan is to open a way out, and that he thinks is what the knife is for, what he has it for. They are astonished. It will undo everything. It will be the greatest blow they could strike against the authority, they think. And then when they get out, they'll find their demons, but will insist that they think about now. Now is enough. The power of staying in the present moment is something that will be very important in Mary's part of the story shortly. So the Galavespians are going to distract the harpies who are gathering thick as blowflies um, so that Lyra can speak to the ghosts so that Will can try using the knife here. Uh, he has to let his mind become disengaged. He holds the knife loosely. And when he finally is able to concentrate, put the taunts out of his mind, he cuts into a world straight into rock. They're underground this time, whereas before, when the world's uh, grounds haven't lined up, he's been high above. Still, uh, he keeps searching, but everywhere he looks, 
the resonance for that same footing is wrong. Everywhere he cuts into, he finds rock. At this point, Lara senses that something is wrong. And he says they'll have to move in order to find a world to open into. Um, they wonder if they might be stuck there forever. But Will says, if worse comes to it, they can cut a tunnel through the rock. The knife will get them out, not to worry. Still, their being without their demons is taking a toll on them. She's aching for Pan. Um, and the ghosts, too, want to be sure that when the children get out again, they will remember them. They'll tell them about them. But one little girl is afraid, or ashamed, rather, that she's forgotten her own name. Uh, some say it's better to forget, while others still know who they are. But the ghosts say that no one forgets the sunshine, the wind. And they implore Lyra to tell them about that, tell them about the things they remembered and things they've forgotten, like how to play. Tell them the truth. Tell us about the world. So they move over to a tree. She sits, feeling weak. I think it's hard not to connect this tree with the uh, Garden of Eden story. Um, meanwhile, uh, the others are fighting off the harpies. Oh, Roger and the others come in to listen with a passion. She tells them first about the uh, rook they met, uh, they found with the broken leg, about the wine cellars thick with dust, significant detail there, how they got drunk on the wine. And Roger is proud and desperate to be part of the story, saying that's just how it happened. Um, then she goes into much more detail about the battle between the townies and the clay burners children. She wants to get in everything. Uh, and the ghosts, her audience, will her never to stop. Again, the important word there, will. Um, so the description we get is a version of a story we've already heard. Um, it's told not exactly in her words, but in an interesting kind of mixture between the narrator and the voice or the person of Lyra carrying the story along here. Uh, in some ways, I think this is the, the true heart of this entire long series. Um, is the story that Lyra tells here, the narrator uh, interprets for us. And it's a story of a battle. Uh, throwing not dust, of course, but mud, that, that clay, um, how they tore the castle down. It's, it's a battle, but it's a play fight, ultimately. The air, ground, water are mixed, like that chaos of elements that is this jumping off point for the entire book from Milton. Um, and at the end of it, every child looks the same, covered in mud, and none of them had a better day in all their lives. So that 
democracy of reading that Pullman talks about, that manifold quantity of the dead is turned into a positive value here. The ashes to ashes and dust to dust or mud to mud um, is a delightful result of their play battle. And even that great battle, I think, that's raging in the background right, turns out to have not been a battle at all. Um, because the harpies haven't actually attacked. And um, the revolt against heaven, uh, as we'll see, is really sort of a sideshow in the series. So there's another audience. That audience beyond will. Um, it brings a shock to Lyra. If women's faces, solemn and spellbound. The harpies, she asks them, what's stopping them? Because they attacked before. But they explained that thousands of years ago, when the first ghosts came to the world of the dead, the authority gave them the power to see the worst in everyone. And they fed on that worst until their blood is rank with it, their hearts sickened. But it was all they had. Now, that mind-reading power of theirs, or that power of hearing anyhow, they've learned that there's a plan to open the way to the upper world. And so everyone can hear now. And a million whispers uh, pass from ghost to ghost as they uh, spread the word till the screams shout them down. Well, what will they do now? They will hold nothing back. They will send them mad. They will make of this wasteland a hell. And again, Lyra nearly loses her nerve, turning to Will. Uh, but he tells her not to despair. And Tialis is the one who says now uh, that they want um, to make a deal, um, that they have a better thing to offer than the worst of the ghosts' lives. Instead of the lies and fantasy that Lyra tried spinning for them before, she can also tell true stories, of course. And true stories are nourishing for the harpies. They feed on them, and it's better than the wickedness that they knew before. News of the world, of the sun, the wind and the rain, again, those elements, which are also elements of story. This inspires Tias's great bargain here, that the uh, ghosts that come down in the future will have to tell the truth about what they've known in the world, and the harpies will have a right to hear it. Um, he says it as if he had the power to confer these rights. But uh, they don't seem bothered by that. It's just that they think it's not enough. They had a task under the old dispensation. They had a duty. They were honored, hated, feared. But if the ghosts can simply walk out, then what becomes of their pride, their respect? Now, Samakia interjects that they shall be the guardians and keepers of this place. They shall guide the ghosts to the new opening. And the ghosts in exchange will give their story its payment, the story of their lives and all those good things for the harpies to feed on. Now, it seems that they're not really giving rights, but merely revealing some rights that were always there, perhaps. Um, something that had been covered up, in fact, by the, quote, old dispensation. Um, so if this is a new dispensation, it is one that's in accord with nature, 
it seems, uh, with the harpy's nature and with that of uh, human lives and stories. Oh, human and all the other sentient beings, as we'll see. Um, there's the suggestion that the harpies can keep ghosts from leaving if they have nothing to tell, but they will make an exception for infants. And the root of that word, of course, those who cannot speak, um, those who have not had time to see and touch and learn things in the world. To this, they all agree. Um, and uh, they guide the travelers and the knife to a place where the upper world is close. But they must go through some caves first. And as if to foreshadow that underworld within the underworld, that darker place yet that they must pass through, we hear the cry of a thin, angry man, ghost of one. He wonders that if they're going to vanish when they reach the outside world, that they shouldn't follow this child. Uh, he wants to know what will happen. The others all demand to know. And Will simply tells her, tell the truth ask the alethiometer. Um, what he pointed out at the start uh, of this episode, right, was that she can both tell stories and read the alethiometer, read the truth and tell it. Um, now, she has a corresponding power to withhold herself from asking it things. And that, I think, is an important detail I didn't mention about the prophecy. She has never tried to ask the alethiometer. She's never even thought about it um, up until this moment. And of course she has given over to Will a lot of her uh, agency about when to read the alethiometer after uh, nearly betraying him. So again, as the Galvespians recognize, they are bound together at this point. Um, and uh, at his bidding here, she does. She reads the alethiometer um, to answer this particular question about what will happen when she leads the ghosts out, what she takes to be her destiny. And it's as they suspect that the particles will loosen, like those of their demons, but they won't be nothing. They'll be a part of everything. They'll never vanish. So she gives her word. She promises. She swears. They'll drift apart and be a part of everything alive. Um, as the ghosts remember or imagine what that might be like if they didn't have demons, one who died as a martyr, a woman, speaks up. And she seems to be speaking for the author here. Um, that in life they were told of heaven, the joy and glory, the eternity of bliss, praising the Almighty, that they gave their lives or years of their life in solitary prayer and never knew that what they had in store was neither reward nor punishment, but simply nothing, no freedom, no peace. So she says that even if it's oblivion, it won't be nothing. It'll be the blades of grass, it'll be the physical world that is their true home. And that's a very interesting claim. It's the precise reverse of the dogma of Augustine on down that the world is a sojourn, that 
the true home for humanity is elsewhere. And as if to speak for that uh, tradition, a monk with zealous eyes shouts that they uh, are being led astray, that this is a bitter message, a joke. The child is an agent of the evil one, that this is... Uh, uh, that the world, that is, the physical world, was a veil of corruption and tears. Nothing there could satisfy them, nearly quoting Augustine in the Confessions, and that uh, the Almighty has granted them this paradise. The world of the dead to them seems bleak to the fallen, but to those with the eyes of faith, it is flowing with milk and honey, and the shouts of the harpies are hymns of angels. The child will lead them to hell, but those of the true faith will remain here those who have the judgment to tell the false from the true. So the monk and his companions turn away in horror and loathing. Lyra is bewildered. She looks again to Will. She knows she's been wrong before, trusting Mrs. Coulter with her beauty and glamour. She's worried, especially now without her demon, that she won't be able to tell, make the, the right call. And at this point, Will grabs her face roughly and tells her that she knows as well as she can feel his hands. She has to trust her body and senses as Pan would have done. Um, and again, that seems to be the sort of the hand of the author coming through into the story. Um, we're, at, I think, uh, not really meant to doubt whether this is the right thing to do. Still, it's going to be arduous, the millions and millions of dead set off in a great march. Um, the imagery here uh, throughout has been evocative of the classics, Aeneid and, and the Odyssey, uh, but especially perhaps um, Milton and, uh, and Dante as well. Um, so uh, I think just as in all these stories, we go down to the underworld, to the world of the dead, to find out what we need to know, to to seek the answers uh, to our questions and to understand our destiny, not just our fate, that is death, but whatever true home we might have. Um, in all those ways, I think the image of going down uh, is a, a powerful one um, for what we do when we read these sorts of stories. Um, so whatever you take Pullman's message to be, uh, he certainly is pointing us back towards Milton, Dante, and ultimately the Bible. Um, we surely owe it to ourselves uh, and uh, to uh, those we care about to, to read those stories and, and think deeply about them. Um, we see here among the great march, some of their own people, some of every kind of conscious being punished with exile and death in this world. Um, the Mulefa are singled out that Mary would have recognized, the narrator tells us, and stranger ones even than the Mulefa. So, they move on after the harpies. Um, there's a kind of light at the end of the tunnel moment here. Again, perhaps the narrator, the author, talking to himself as much as to anyone. There's hope that this is nearly over. Uh, Lyra asks and Will responds with yes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>